when we practice mindfulness, which is simply internal awareness that is non-judgmental and curious and doesn't add any concepts, just observes our inner experience. He said there's four different things that we could pay attention to. They're known as foundations. And so the famous sutta, uh, the Buddha called the four foundations of mindfulness, the four areas where we can focus our attention inwardly. And uh, there's, uh, by the way, a lot of very, very good clinicals and neuroscience that demonstrates the efficacy of why uh, internal awareness is such an important thing to do. It uh, not only works very well with reducing um, <coughs> obsessive ideations, addressing anxiety, it also is very, very useful in strengthening neural regions of the brain that you would want to strengthen, such as the cingulate, which focuses attention, as well as the hippocampus, which keeps your memory intact, while it also diminishes other areas of the brain that you would want to diminish, such as the amygdala, which is the fear. Uh, people who meditate uh, 20 minutes a day have noticeably less amygdala activations. So mindfulness is good for you. If you want to read the research, Sarah Lazar at Harvard uh, has done meta-analysis on it, and she's particularly readable in that arena. So anyway, there's four areas we can pay attention to, the sensations of the body. So right now I'm sitting, I could pay attention to my body breathing and the feelings of, associated with sitting in a chair. But then I, the other three areas of mindfulness would be feelings, which are the way emotions express themselves in the body, and generally emotions express themselves in the front of the body so they can be communicative to other people. They run down what's known the vagal nerve structure, which runs down the front of the face, through the throat, chest, and belly. And that's why so many of our emotions we feel is lumps in the throat, uh, heartache, tightness in the belly, and facial muscle contractions is because the vagal nerves are essentially deeply connected to the right hemisphere, which manages our emotional messaging. So that's the second area. We can pay attention to the way feelings of the Buddha said, I like what's going on in my life, I don't like what's going on in my life, or I don't care about what's going on in my life. When I like what's going on in my life, the muscles in the front of the body relax, the shoulders relax, the chest softens, the facial muscles relax into a smile or into a neutral expression. And that's the way the body says, I'm okay with what's going on. It's a direct message from the unconscious to the body. Um, the third area that we could pay attention to is what's known as the Buddha called mental states. Another way of putting it is using the good old term moods. We could pay attention to our moods. Our moods are also expressions of emotions, but instead of being primarily in the body, our moods are the way emotions express themselves through our state of attention, the way our mind can be jumpy or fixated, the way we can feel all the way in the back of our heads, or we can feel this energy in the mind to get rid of, to leave a situation, or to feelings of energy in the mind, or feelings of um, 
feelings of uh, tiredness in the mind. All of those can be different ways the emotions of the right hemisphere connect with us as well. So the emotions connect to us through feelings in the body, the front of the body, or moods in the mind, which are states of attention. And then the fourth foundation that we could focus on would be our thoughts, noticing the way we interpret life and language and come up with concepts. So those are the four foundations. Tonight I'm going to be talking about why being aware of feelings and moods especially is so important. And to do this, I'm going to take a tact that no Buddhist teacher in their right mind, so luckily it's me, uh, would ever take. I'm going to uh, legitimize this practice from the perspective of contemporary psychology and some of the most modern ideas that are floating around, because that's also what I do. I work as a Buddhist teacher, and I also do counseling, so uh, I'm interested in both, and that's why I give the weird talks that I give. There is, in contemporary psychology, a very, very important new, I'll call it, psychological construct called mentalization. Mentalization is the ability to understand the underlying mind states, oneself and other people, and to take them into consideration when we interpret why people do the things that they do. And I'm going to talk about why that's so important and why it's the fundamental uh, quality that allows us to be with other people in the world without experiencing conflict or suffering. And then I'm going to show how the Buddha's tools in the four foundations allow us to do that. Okay? So, uh, if that's not confusing enough, I'll just launch into the talk. And hopefully you'll see what I mean as I give it. So, when we are born, we arrive in the world in a state of what could be called wholeness, without any sense of self or other, without any sense of inside or outside, without any sense of this is my body, without any sense that there is other people or minds in the world. It's a state of symbiotic unity. Uh, and at this point, right after birth, the mother is not, by the baby, understood to be another being. It's just felt as a kind of extension of the baby's body. The baby doesn't know that the warmth, that the breast, that the coddling, that the being held by the father or the mother is another being with different mind states than its own. As adults, this state of unity without inside or outside, without the sense that there's any other being in the universe, is completely impossible for you now to even begin to wrap your head around this because it's so foreign to the adult perspective, which is there's me and there's everybody else and I gotta worry about everybody else and I gotta manage how I feel so I can fit in with everybody. This is the exact, it's, it's just so foreign, a perspective or a state of being. Now, you might think that the state of unity would be pleasant, but it not. it's not, it sucks. Big time. It's bad. No good. Why? Because the infant, when it experiences emotions or unpleasant sensations, it doesn't know that there's any other being in the world at first that will address those feelings. For children, 
feelings of discomfort after they defecate or urinate or feelings of hunger or feelings of, of vulnerability when, are so terrifying that they are in a constant state of near agitation or complete agitation. So fortunately for us, to alleviate this vast sense of aloneness and vulnerability and when, how am I going to deal with these emotional upheavals that arise, we have hardwired into us and almost available within the first month after birth the ability to recognize faces, facial expressions, imitate gestures. In other words, we have all of the tools hardwired into us innately that allow for nonverbal communication. The baby very quickly after it feels this vulnerable state of being completely cast into a foreign universe without the sense or knowledge that there's anything there taking care of it, has the ability to make eye contact or facial recognition or get a sense that there's another person uh, out there in the world. So shortly, within the first two months of life, uh, developmental psychologists note that parents and infants start to develop a nonverbal form of communication. And it's through this communication that infants get the first idea that they are not alone in the world, that there's other beings, other beings that understand what they're experiencing and can alleviate what they're experiencing. This is the most probably the most monumental event in every human life. This process of connecting with others, it forms the entire emotional expectations that will govern us through our lives. It forms the entire way that uh, our person, the proto-personality that will play out deep into our lives. So there's two ways that this communication happens. The first is through mirroring. Mirroring is when the mother imitates the emotional state of the child. So the child's frightened, and it, that's me being a child being frightened, in case it looked very disturbing to you. It was actually a, uh, an attempt to, to make, clarify a concept. Anyway, uh, so the child looks frightened, and the mother mirrors back the fear to the child. And in this mirroring, the child sees a representation of its own emotion in the face of the mother. And this is what is called mirroring. And it's through mirroring that we get the sense that there are other beings out in the world that understand the emotional experience that we are going through. Mirroring is um, vital in our development. Where children are not mirrored, as I'll talk about in a moment, there is significant uh, impairments that will essentially last throughout the individual's life unless they, are, they address it. So uh, mirroring the caretaker imitates the emotions expressed by the child. The child sees it and it knows that somebody understands, there's somebody out there understanding, connecting, seeing what it's going through. But then the mother has to do something else, uh, the mother or father, which is they have to mark. Now, marking is where the mother says, essentially, 
I know you're feeling scared or angry or frustrated or lonely or uncomfortable, but I'm not, so I can take care of you. If the mother didn't mark that she was okay, the infant would believe, I'm scared and mommy's scared too. Nothing good's going to happen. Nobody's going to alleviate my fear. So the child would begin to believe that its emotions are spreading to the mother. So the marking is when the mother smiles after she imitates the child's distress. She gives a little smile saying, I'm okay. It's going to be okay. And then that says to the child, guess what? There's other people that understand what you're going through, but they're not experiencing the exact same emotional state as you. They are actually in a place where they can help you uh, deal with your or regulate your emotions. They can take actions on your behalf. So a mother, when she smiles after the child looks uncomfortable, she'll change the baby's diapers, she'll bring the child food, she'll bring it a blanket for warmth, she'll bring it water, she'll play something to distract it. So she will meet the child's emotional needs. And if all goes well through mirroring and marking, those are the two foundations that will set your entire emotional lives of how you get co-regulated by other people throughout the entirety of your adult endeavors. What you will need is when you feel an emotion, you will need to find someone, communicate that emotion, have them visually, not verbally, but visually communicate that they get it. And then through language later on, we mark and we say, I get it, that sucks. Here's what we, here's what we can maybe do to help. So in adult life, we continue to have these needs of being seen, mirrored, and then having someone say, I get it, you're scared, you're lonely, you're angry, you're frustrated, and I get it, but I'm not feeling that right now, so I can help. That's what uh, is set in these early exchanges. Now, when we get these things done well, what the mother does by... Uh, mirroring the emotions and marking, she starts using language and she says, oh, you're scared, oh, you're frightened, oh, you're angry, oh, you're hungry. And so the mother starts labeling the emotions that the child is in and the child begins to understand and conceptualize what it's feeling. It begins to make sense of its own states of physical agitation and changes of mood. If we don't get mirrored, what happens is our, the energies that we experience remain indistinguishable, unknowable, frightening, and they will become felt as alien experiences that we will desperately try to get rid of. Those emotions that are not properly mirrored in childhood will be felt as alien dark shadows in us that we will be ashamed of or we will vent to get out of us so that we don't feel them because we associate the emotions that weren't mirrored with abandonment, not being seen, being vulnerable. Now, to the degree that we are successful or unsuccessful in this process, there are deeper implications of just the way we feel about our own emotions. It also will inform or influence the way we relate to other human beings in our lives. There are two primary states that adults stay in when they don't receive good enough mirroring 
in their childhood. Those two states, one is known as psychic equivalence, and one is known as pretend mode. Psychic equivalence is that state where um, we believe that everything we see is true and objective, and if anybody experiences anything different than what we saw, they're lying or they're insane. Psychic equivalence is the inability to tolerate any other perspective or point of view because it's the belief, due to a lack of mirroring in childhood, the child grows up into a narcissist, <coughs> Trump, that cannot understand that there are other points of view that are valid, other people with different mind states. So what they lack, when, what we lack when we are in psychic equivalence is a theory of mind, the understanding that there are different perspectives. Even though we see something, it's not necessarily what everybody else sees. When we're in psychic equivalence, we don't believe that we have, that our moods or feelings influence in any way what we perceive because we are unaware of those things because we have not been mirrored enough or we, when we're in that emotional state, we don't know how to recognize those moods. So we repress awareness of the mood or the feeling and we believe that everything we see is objective. People who live in psychic equivalent believe that if they're angry, then everyone is angry and the world is a terrible hostile place. People who are in psychic equivalence believe if they are sad, then the world is a miserable, sad place. There is no possibility of any other state of mind. People who are in psychic equivalent um, essentially will not tolerate any other perspective. If they want to believe that somebody is attracted to them, it will be a fact to them, no matter how much that person says, ah, I'm not interested. So that's psychic equivalent. It's the belief that there's an objective view of reality. I have it, you don't. If you disagree with me, my way of seeing everything is true and yours doesn't exist or matter. Men who gaslight women are in psychic equivalence. They simply believe that the way they see it is true and everybody else's point of view doesn't matter. It's incorrect. The second way of viewing the world for people who don't have enough uh, development is pretend mode. That's the child state of going into fantasy where the child decides that everything it will experience for a while is just not real. The child can, for instance, pretend that its bed is a boat and it knows that it won't get wet if it gets off the bed, but it believes for a while that it can just decide that the bed is a boat and play that way and it doesn't care what any other parent or what any other child sees. So with pretend mode, it's very similar to its opposite psychic equivalent. With pretend mode, everything is subjective. There is no reality whatsoever. The child is in fantasy and the child doesn't care what anybody else is experiencing or seeing. So both psychic equivalence and pretend mode is I don't really give a fuck what you're experiencing or what your underlying mind state is. So we see this very often um, pretend mode with people who are addicted 
to television or drugs and alcohol or to escapist fantasy or to living life on social media that is essentially a non-reality, a bifurcated, created uh, structure. People who don't want to acknowledge uh, a great example of pretend mode are Republicans. <laughs> when they say there's no such thing as science and therefore there's no way to prove that there is global warming, they are in classic pretend mode. They are saying there is no reality. Everything is whatever you want to make believe it is. There's no truth. Everything is fake news. I can say whatever I want because there's no implications. That is the classic example of pretend mode. So hopefully, if we achieve an adult perspective, if we get enough mirroring, enough support in our lives, we develop a third state that transcends psychic equivalence and transcends pretend. And that's what's known as mentalizing. Mentalizing is when, as adults, we realize that though we live in a shared reality, that there is some real world, there is real terrible things going on in it, we also know that each person's perspective is slightly different. And so we still have to deal with adult realities and responsibilities, but we also do not believe that our perspective is the only one or the only perspective that matters. When we mentalize, we understand that the truth is something that has to be developed between people, not in one individual alone. That if a couple is really in a committed relationship, the couple through mentalizing both can have different perspectives on arguments that they get into, but when they mentalize, the one partner says, okay, I get it, obviously I've said something that upsets you, I'd like to know what it is, I'd like to know what your perspective on this disagreement was, and then I'd like you to hear what mine was, and together they collaborate on a third approach to understanding, that collaboration is the new understanding of what actually happened between them that they mutually agree upon. Mentalizing, as the great psychologist Fonagy and um, uh, what's her name, um, uh, Uta Frith, David Wallen, Anthony Bateman, these are some of the most important names in contemporary psychology and they all talk about mentalizing. When we mentalize, we let go of this belief that if somebody does something shitty, that it means they're a terrible person. Because mentalizing forces us to acknowledge that people get into moods where they do things that are not representative of who they are all the time. When we mentalize, we are capable of understanding that moods and feelings dictate behavior, not personalities. It's not that somebody is always evil or wrong when they disagree with me if, or when they do something that's hurtful. It could be that at that moment they were stressed out, tired, irritable. And if I understand the mood that they were in, then I will understand that they won't always act that way. And so I'll be able to say to them, okay, that made me feel unsafe, 
but I know that you're not who that person is all the time. When we are capable of mentalizing, we will forgive ourselves when we make mistakes. We will, in other words, um, when I, if I do something that's unthoughtful, I'll examine the state of mind that I was in rather than simply beat myself up. And I'll try to change the state of mind next time or not act out when I'm in that state of mind rather than just believe that I'm somehow a bad person. So mentalizing essentially allows us to be in mature, lasting, healthy relationships. We have to be curious about not the behaviors that other people do, but what motivates the behaviors that other people do. When we do that, we let go of this globalizing tendency of believing that the people in our lives are um, uh, always one thing or the other. And it's for this very reason that mentalizing has provided the first successful utility for addressing borderline personality disorder. If you don't know what BPD, it was for a long time considered to be a personality, cluster B personality disorder that was untreatable because the people who have it constantly view people in black and white, heroes, villains, rescuers, abandoners, and they become very, they tend to revoke their moods to anger. And it's through mentalizing where the therapist constantly calls attention to the underlying state of the person with BPD and then calls attention to their own underlying mental state that the person with BBT learns to understand that people are not all good or all bad, but are simply acting out the, uh, the, that their actions are always caused by underlying states. And when people do this, they can actually address significant personality disorders. So when I mentalize, if you disagree with me, it doesn't mean you're lying, it doesn't mean you're insane, it simply means you have a different perspective. It encourages me to get curious. It encourages me to ask questions. It encourages me to do all the foundations that the Buddha suggested 2,500 years ago when we relate to other people. His, the Buddha's suggestions on relating to others almost identically match Fonagy's workbook. In, de in mentalizing. Uh, one, refrain from clinging to our interpretations or beliefs until we get other perspectives. Actually get curious about what other people have experienced before we make a judgment or we assume that we know what they are experiencing. Two, acknowledge when we make mistakes and forgive which will encourage us to obviously acknowledge our own, uh, that we are constantly going from one mind state to another, which will change how we perceive the world. When we acknowledge our mistakes, acknowledge our fallibility, we get out of psychic equivalence and we move into the capability of mentalizing, where we realize, hey, sometimes I get stressed out and I say, things are I vent emotions rather than holding and acknowledging the emotions. We lower conflict when we mentalize by instead of first uh, defending ourselves, we get curious and we ask things like, what did I say that was hurtful? What did I say 
well, how could I have communicated in a different way? So we actively investigate the other person's perspective and what would make them feel safe. All of these tools are obviously the keys of interpersonal, robust relationships. But the other tool that Fonagy and Wallen talk about is mindfulness. The importance of if we want to mentalize, we have to know what's going on in our own experience, what our own moods, what our own feelings are. We can't just try to uh, creatively interpret other people's or ask them. We need to be able to connect with and learn how to discern what moods, what feelings I am in right now. And that's the purpose of the meditation we are about to do right now. What we're going to do is follow literally the Buddha's instructions. Know when we're obsessed, know when we're enraged, know when we're disconnected from re reality, when we're in fantasy, know when the mind is scattered, fixated, released, tired, or filled with energy. When we know those states, we can understand and discern what mind state we're in, and then we can begin to see the connection between our behavior and the mind state we're in, and we can begin to see the connections between the times we do things that are skillful and that work on our behalf and the mind states that we need to be in. Generally, I'll give you a hint, when we're calm, <laughs> when the mind is spacious and not fixated, when we're not trying to get rid of our experience or cling to our experience, when we're curious, when we're interested in what's going on is when we tend to take the actions that we feel the most are the most uh, pride about in the long term. So let's practice. So find a really comfortable seated position and try to keep your, the only effort to put in it all in this practice is to keep your head from drifting in front of your chest. That's, when we slouch, we make it easier to drift off, to not be present, and it also creates, generally over the course of a practice, it creates physical pain neck strain. So the recommendation is find a comfortable way to balance your head over your shoulders, your shoulders over your hips. If you have a basic straight alignment, that tends to be the most sustainable. But anything else, just relax. So we'll start off this practice by taking three breaths in unison just as a kind of uh, ceremony to, key, to launch the meditation. So take a nice full in-breath through the nose and lift up your shoulders if you'd like, like you're trying to touch your ears and just hold them up there for a moment. And then when you breathe out through the mouth, nice Perfect. And drop the shoulders like they weigh two tons. And if it feels good, 
gently pull back the shoulders a little bit so that you uh, have nice room for the air in the lungs and then also the shoulders feel better when they tend to be tucked a little bit back and then for the second in breath through the nose pull in the belly the abdomen really tight so that it feels like we're trying to reduce our waist size by an inch or two and then and then soften the belly really without any tension or tightness or holding just a belly that is truly released and then for the third breath squinching the toes the buttocks the fists and especially clenching the jaw squeezing the eyes shut furrowing the brow squinching the area around the nose tight-faced and then as we breathe out Soften the micro muscles around the eyes. Release the clenched jaw so the jaw is hanging comfortably. Allow and encourage your eyes to settle behind the eyelids. Soften the forehead. And if you can, find an unforced kind of Mona Lisa smile, half smile, or just a position that doesn't feel fake but tells your experience that there's nothing going on right now to worry about in this moment, everything's okay. And the next is to set our intention, which it's always a good idea to establish at the outset that we're not going to use any form of self-judgment, self-criticism, we're not going to add any stories about how good or bad we are at meditation. We're just going to cultivate a state of appreciation. And perhaps to help with that endeavor, it's worth noting that studies show that it doesn't really matter whether in a meditation the mind is jumpy or tired at first you still get the same benefits. So worrying that you feel internally like your mind is all over the place and it looks like, or it feels like everybody else is the Buddha in this room, just let go of that. It's not true. And you're still benefiting. And plus, when you meditate, you're not using up the world's resources. You're not harming any other beings. You're cultivating a state of peace. You're reducing the likelihood of conflict in your life. So, in essence, you're engaging in something that's utterly blameless, utterly harmless. So we're going to start this meditation off with the first foundation, which is just bring your awareness to the sensations in your body. Now there's 
a couple of different ways you can practice the first foundation of mindfulness. The Buddha said, of course, we could simply be aware of the breath in the body. And if you'd like to do that, just find the area in your body where the breath is most apparent, most discernible, and simply count inhalations and exhalations. So one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out. When you get to five, count back down, four on the out. Three on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. So we're counting from one to five and back down. It's a very simple practice. And when you get to a point where you believe you don't need to count to keep your mind on the sensations of the breath, then stop counting and just see if you can keep the mind relatively relaxed on the breath. Now, you don't have to only be aware of the breath. If you hear the sounds of the street, if memories from the day pop up in the mind, if little thoughts pop up, so long as they're in the background of the stage of your awareness, that's okay. Just have in the foreground the sensations of breathing. Now, the Buddha said if we don't do that, we could also simply be aware. As I am seated, what are the sensations of being seated? Feeling the body sway. Hear the sounds entering from outside. Feeling the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Feeling the contact sensations with the chair. Your hands resting on knees or thighs, the feeling of clothes in the body. Connect with all of the sensations that are associated with sitting and meditation.
So we're going to move into the second foundation now, which you can let go of focusing attention on the breath or the body sensations. And now bring your awareness to the area of the body, including the face, the throat, the shoulders, the chest, and the abdomen, the areas in the front of the body associated with the nerves that express emotions. And then for this exercise, bring to mind a series of events that were either in some way have been repeating in your mind, conflicts, opportunities, challenges, obstacles in life. Just bring one by one, not the story, but just a very simple image that represents that topic or issue. And then notice as you hold the image how your body responds, especially the groups we mentioned. So, for instance, if you've had an argument with someone, bring to mind an image of them from the disagreement or a visual that represents the conflict. And then see the subtle affects that occur in the face, the throat, the chest and the belly, what the Buddha called feelings. Eventually, the goal would be to constantly throughout life, as much as possible, be aware of how we are constantly experiencing feelings. And feelings are the way, one of the two ways that the emotional circuits of the brain connect and let us know what their needs are. If we don't know what our feelings are, we're ignoring significant, important information. Our needs are what give us true fulfillment. Very often our needs are what allows us to set boundaries, knowing when to state needs. Without awareness of feelings, we constantly prioritize thinking over feeling, and that leads us to dead ends. So we know what we feel by paying attention to the muscles in the face, the throat, the chest, and the belly. Some people call it the inner child. And you can cycle through as many different memories, situations, and just see how your body responds. Sometimes it won't have any response, and sometimes you'll feel, for instance, the possibility of changing a job or going on a trip or taking a risk in life. You'll notice that the stomach will tighten or the facial muscles will change. And that's just the way that your emotional mind is connecting with you.
So this part we're going to go to the third foundation of mindfulness, which is awareness of mood. So you can release from attention the muscles in the front of the body. And now we're going to pay attention to the quality of mind that happens. So there are a couple of different themes to look for. One's clear mood is when we are in a state of anger, we want to get rid of something. We want to push something out of our awareness. When we vent with people, it's when we are trying to get rid of the experience of anger. Greed is when we fixate on something and we want to attain it. So it's a very fixated attention. There's fantasy when we are lost in thought about uh, something that is wholly constructed by the mind. Preoccupied is when we spend our time thinking about someone else, a person we're in a relationship with, someone we feel disappointed by. So preoccupied is when we are not present, the mind keeps going to someone who's not presently available, their feelings of being tired, lack of energy, anxiety is the state of the mind jumping about trying to avoid feeling something in the body, so the mind bounces about trying to find something else to focus attention on. And then there's the mind that is released, as the Buddha said, open, spacious, aware, but not pinned, not trying to get rid of anything, not anxious. Just a very open, spacious level of attention. So these are different moods, and there are, of course, more that you could discern. So once again, bring to mind different emotionally charged experiences and see how with each image you hold in mind the mind reacts to it in a different way. If something is triggering you might find yourself suddenly getting hot, the mind might suddenly fill with an energy of trying to get rid of an image, or the mind might jump away, the mind might become very pinned and fixated, you might suddenly find yourself tired if there's something you want to avoid, or if something's exciting you might suddenly find the mind filled with energy. just as there are different feelings associated with different experiences, there are different moods associated with different experiences and behaviors.
So at this point we're going to begin the transition from the meditation. And the simple request is when it's time to open your eyes first, look at the ground in front of you when you open your eyes. If you simply look around the room, all the objects and people and sights, etc., will be so rich and varied that it will result in pushing your internal awareness of feelings and moods all the way into the background, and all of the um, skills that we develop will be essentially shunted away. So what we want to do when we make the transition from a meditation is integrate the internal awareness so that we wind up with the best state to be in, which is a state where we are both aware of the world around us, but also aware of the way we feel, the mood that we're in. That way we can both mentalize and take in the needs that we need to address in the world around us. So whenever you're ready, open your eyes.